All right. If you have your Bibles, or don't, or have a phone with an app, you can't hear me at all. <laughs> uh oh. Is that better? It's facing you guys. Are you guys okay over there? Okay, good. Go ahead and open your Bibles if you have it. And if you don't, because we're all, it's all dirty and crazy here, I'll read it for you. We're going to be in the book of Philippians. Uh, like Graham has spoken and, and Sean has as well preached, there's, we've already pretty much hit up on all the, at least the key passages there when it comes to anxiety and fear. One of the things that we talked about was not being fearful, but what are some things that we should be doing? What are the things, instead of putting off these things, like putting off fear and anxiety, what are we to be putting on? And I think Paul answers that question for us in Philippians. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Philippians 4. I'm just going to read verses 4 through 7. We're not going to get all the way through 7 because there's just too much here going on. Philippians is a pretty dense book. So we're just going to be focusing probably on 4, 5, and 6 for the most part. Let me read this. This is the word of the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is something the world doesn't have. This is something the world can't have without Christ. We talk about the stress, the, you can talk about your own personal lives, you can talk about our culture that's just been on fire for the past couple years. You could talk about maybe family relationships, you could talk about anything, work relationships, personal family relationships, all those things. There's things that we can be anxious about and that the world is constantly anxious about. We have news organizations that are 24-7 that feed off of that <laughs> and that's how they get their money is to feed off of your fear, your anxiety, your worry, and to keep you pulled in and to be hanging in there in that state of anxiety and fear and worry to find out what's the solution, what's next. As a Christian, we're not supposed to be that way. And so with these texts, I wanna focus on three uh, particular exhortations because at this point in the, in the text in Philippians, Paul has been writing, he's been, uh, he's been setting up, giving the gospel, talking about Christ, talking about the whole theme of the book, if you were to sum it up in one word, that would be rejoice. But at this point in Philippians 4, we're now getting the exhortation from Paul. He shifted. And now we're in the exhortation section. And he gives us three areas in this text that we're going to talk about, three areas that we can uh, improve our spiritual stability. And what I mean by spiritual stability is that we're not anxious, we're not fretting, we're not running around like chickens with our heads cut off, freaking out about what's going on in the world, panicking at every little news headline that comes across our phones or our TVs or any situation that pops up in our lives in general. He gives us three areas to improve our spiritual stability. The first one is to rejoice always in verse four. The second one he gives us is to revive a gracious spirit, revive a gracious spirit in verse five. And then Lastly, remember the nearness of God at the end of verse 5 and beginning of verse 6. Those are the three headlines. If you're taking notes, the first one is rejoice always, revive a gracious spirit, and remember the nearness of God. And I'll hit them up as we go through as well. As I was preparing this study and realizing it was written by Paul, 
If there was anyone who could be fearful and be anxious in his life, it would probably be Paul. This guy had a special commission from God to know what it was going to be like to suffer for his name's sake. This guy had a very special calling that not all of us have. Directly called by God, an apostle, and his mission was going to be, you're going to do ministry, you're going to go to the Gentiles, and you're going to suffer as you do that. It's going to be a life of suffering, a ministry of suffering, but there's going to be great joy. And then yet Paul in this book, throughout all that suffering, can say, I can rejoice. And it's not just in this section. We see it in verse 1, verses 15 through 18, where there were people preaching Christ, those who are preaching with good intentions, and those who are preaching out of selfish intentions for themselves and for their gain. And how did Paul respond to that? To those guys who were evangelizing and preaching Christ? He said, so what? As long as Christ is proclaimed, I can rejoice. That's what he was talking about there. He can rejoice even when people have bad motivations. And then in chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, Paul rejoices that his life can be used by God to bring about the faith of the Philippians, even if it cost him everything. He could rejoice. He could still be glad that the Lord was in control and that he was bringing about people to salvation, including the Gentiles. He could enjoy that and he could rejoice in that. And he commands them also to rejoice in chapter 3, verse 1. He, so this constant theme of rejoice, get this in your head. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. He's emphatically telling us to rejoice. But how can we do that? How can we sit there and rejoice over the loss of a job? I've been there. I've lost my job. I got one day notice once, and that was not fun. Paul tells me in that circumstance to rejoice. How do I rejoice in that? Or how do I rejoice in the loss of a relationship or a rocky marriage? How can I rejoice in that as a believer? How can I rejoice in the loss of a loved one? Paul tells me to still rejoice in those things. How about my lost unbelieving family? How can I rejoice in that, knowing where their path is taking them? Or even like some of us, it's the, it's the loss of our country culture and how it's declining and how it's decaying. How can I rejoice in that? But the rejoicing that Paul is talking about here is not some type of oblivious or delusional view of the circumstances. It's not happy-go-lucky sunshine and roses. That's not what he's talking about here, what he means by rejoicing. In fact, we could say probably Jesus was the most joyful and happy person to ever walk this planet, and yet he suffered, and yet he died. He, had, he was the suffering servant. Ultimately, that was one of his titles as a suffering servant. How could he be joyful in his ministry? How was he able to do that? Was he always just running around with smiles and laughing all the time? Is that the kind of rejoicing we're talking about? This command to rejoice is not just to create a facade. It's not to create just this pretend face for everyone to see when you go up to church and everything's all fine. Yay, I'm rejoicing. When in fact, in fact your life from Monday through Saturday has been miserable and a nightmare. That's not what he's talking about here. He's not telling you to put on a happy face and spread sunshine. <laughs> That's not what he's asking you to do. Also, he's not commanding you to create and, and stir up an emotion. This rejoicing is not an emotion that he's talking about here. And that's maybe some of the, that mentality that we may have is going, when Paul says for me to rejoice, I need to have this emotion of happiness and, and joy and happy. No, that's not what that means. Here's a good definition of rejoice. I got it from Johnny Mac. It's really good. I like it because it, it just nails it right down 
It's biblically centric, theologically centric. Is is rejoice means this a deep down confidence that God is in control of everything for the believer's good and his own glory. And thus all is well, no matter what the circumstance. I'll say that again. Rejoicing is a deep down confidence that God is in control of everything for the believer's good in his own glory. And thus all is well, no matter what the circumstance. It's kind of like the hymn, it is well. Same idea. When sorrows like seas billows roll, whatever my lot, that was taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. That is rejoicing. That whole, that whole hymn is a rejoicing hymn because it's based on this idea that Paul's talking about here and what led by the spirit, true rejoicing is not dictated by our circumstances. Also, this is in an, an indi uh, present imperative mood. This is something you should be constantly doing. You should be rejoicing always. Constantly rejoicing, not just one time, once a week during Sundays, or when you feel like you're in a good mood and everything's going pretty well in life. That's not the time for rejoicing. It's always rejoicing, whether it's good times, bad times, no matter what. That's what he's talking about there. The only way we can really continue this constant state of rejoicing, a biblical-centered state of rejoicing, is it has to be grounded on something that's unwavering, unchanging, because the world, they put their hope and their joy in the things around them, right? Those things are constantly in flux. Those things are always changing. Those things are always ebbs and flows in life. And you can tell they're happy sometimes and then they're sad sometimes. They're, they're rejoicing and then they're depressed or they're anxious. It's because they're putting their faith and their hope and they're grounding it on something that is constantly shifting and changing. Paul is telling us, he says, you can rejoice always. You can always constantly rejoice because you are being grounded in something much greater than you're being grounded in Christ himself. You're being grounded in God. Your confidence is laid there. Your hope is laid there. Your joy is laid there. If you're a Christian and you're not filled with joy and you can't say, well, I, I, I can't look at myself and go, well, all is well, regardless of my circumstances, it's well. If you're not saying that, maybe it's because you're putting your confidence in something that's not Christ. You're called to never put anything, your trust in anything else other than Christ. Put your hope in him. And this is the only way, this is the only way we could be spiritually stable. The only thing that's stable in this world, in this universe, is Christ himself, God, so if you're not placing your trust in him, you're not going to be stable. Your spiritual walk is not going to be stable. You're not going to be spiritually healthy. You're going to be constantly wavering, constantly shifting moods and feelings, constantly back and forth, instead of being grounded in the word, regardless of your circumstance. So you want a spiritual life that is stable and that would lead to rejoicing? How do we do that? There's only one way, and this is something, especially the high school students, they know, because this is what I, I constantly, I don't harp on it, I preach on it. I, I tell them to continue, exhort them to do this, is be in the word. You cannot be grounded in Christ if you don't know Christ. The unbeliever can't be grounded in Christ because he doesn't know Christ. The believer, who has been saved by grace, still needs to get to know Jesus, still needs to get to know God, regardless. 
Just because you're saved doesn't mean you're off the hook and now everything will be fine. You have to constantly be enveloping yourself and diving into the word, putting the word into your heart so that you can be stable, that you can live a life of anxiety-free living. That's what you need to be doing. And you can only do that by diving in the word, studying the word, reading the word. I'm not talking about making a sermon every day when you, during your devotional time. I'm talking about putting yourself in the word, meditating on that word throughout the day, and then in responding to God as well. This is a two-way relationship that we have with God. He's talking to us through his word, and we need to talk back to him. We need to talk back to him in prayer. If we're not doing that, we're not going to have a healthy relationship. We're going to be unstable. And this isn't anything new Paul's talking about. Jesus is the one who set this up in Matthew 6 for us, and we heard that from Graham as well. This idea of don't worry about your life, and then Paul just takes it, don't be anxious about anything. And that's true. There's nothing to be anxious about in this world. We don't even have to be anxious about our life. So true rejoicing involves a complete and deep trust in God that he is in control and that he is out there for our own good and for his own glory. This just takes me to my second point now. Revive a gracious spirit, verse 5. Revive a gracious spirit. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. This is an interesting word in the Greek, the reasonableness. Some of you may have heard of gentleness, uh, humbleness, let me go back to my notes and find it. It's hard doing notes off of a phone. But you get what you get. Gentle spirit, sweet reasonableness is one way it's been translated. Uh, generosity, goodwill, friendliness, moderation, forbearance. There's lots of words that they try to use. Translators have used several times. I like this one um, specifically, and it would be humble graciousness. I like it because that really encapsulates what that word's trying to convey, a humble graciousness. Have you ever known someone who is humble and gracious to you? There's, there, You don't see that in the world. That is so <laughs> antithetical to what the world is. This idea of humble graciousness. And it's this person who is in constant lookout for other people's needs and not themselves. This is the person, if you're going to be humble and gracious, you're a person who isn't focused on yourself all the time. You're a person who is constantly focused on others and how you can serve them, how you can love them, how you can exhort them to be more like Christ. That is a humble, gracious person, according to Scripture. And this posture, this heart posture, is completely countercultural, countercultural to the self-love centeredness of people today. And how far has that gotten them? When you're self-centered thinking about yourself all the time, how spiritually stable are they? Let's even go emotionally stable, mentally stable. <laughs> we can talk about all the things, physically stable. When you're always constantly out for yourself, you're not going to lead a life that is fulfilling, that is joy-filled, that is honoring to God, and you're going to be miserable. I've tried to do it. I've tried to do it. And probably you guys have too at one point in your life where you tried to just be living for yourself. And that was even at one point my hard attitude, and I had to repent of it, was when I stepped out of even school of seminary and just going, fine, Lord, if you don't want me to do seminary, I'm just going to go into the world, and I'm just going to try to rake in as much money as I can and just be successful there. I, I don't care. 
And that was a terrible attitude. And I was in seminary <laughs> at the time. That is awful attitude to have. But that's self-centeredness. That's not gracious and humble. That's not looking at how can I serve others. And the Lord had to show me that. And he taught me that. And he humbled me. And another benefit of being gracious and humble and not focused on yourself is when the focus is put on others and not on yourself, you can't be easily thrown off by the inequity or injustice done towards you. After all, you're not focused on yourself to begin with. So how can you be bothered by what the world throws at you? How can you be bothered that the world's going to persecute you? And you're like, fine, I'm not my own anyways. I'm the Lord's and I'm out here to serve other people anyways. Big whoopee-doo. So what? And then it's no wonder, if you go to verse 11, Paul talks about how he can be content in everything. When you have this attitude of gracious humbleness, you can sit there and go, no matter what my circumstances, I can be content in those things. And that's where we get the famous verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, because it's Christ who's doing the work. I'm focused on Christ. I'm focused on others. That's how I can, that's how I can have this this spiritual stability of being content no matter what my circumstances. <coughs> Revive a gracious spirit. Revive a humble graciousness in your life. If that doesn't exemplify you, then work on it. <laughs> work on it. Pray that the Lord would give you a gracious, humble heart. And it's not easy. I'm not even saying that I'm there. I'm just telling you this is what Scripture says and we all need to be striving towards that. But I'm sure you know people in your life who have been humble and gracious to you. You find it typically with people who've been walking with the Lord a long time. So get to know those people, hang around those people, reach out to those people, ask them to talk with you, meet with you, mentor you through those things. It's only gonna be a benefit to you. But lastly, my final point here, after reviving a gracious spirit, we need to three, remember the nearness of God. Remember the nearness of God. Verses 5b and 6a, it is, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. This has to be one of the most grounding, stabling, assuring truths that we can find in Scripture, is that the Lord is near. The Lord is at hand. Now, it said in the ESV, the Lord is at hand. Other translations like NASB and I think New King James is the Lord is near. Now, what does it mean? And we're going to go with near because I like the picture that it brings up, the word picture of nearness of God. Um, at hand works as well. But for specifically what Paul's trying to convey here, I think it's more not so much a, a time span of he is near. He is going to come back indeed. But he's also near in presence. He's also near to us in our daily lives in the sense of he's involved in every intricacy of our life and every detail of our life. He's near. He's nearby. We have that encouragement when we're dealing with brothers in sin, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there. We have that, we have that promise. We have that. So it appears, at least in this context, that nearness is in the sense of his presence. He is near enough to hear your heart's cry for help. And we can even say like the psalmist does in Psalm 73, 28, but for me, it is good to be near God. 
the more near we are to God, the more rejoicing we can have, the more joy, the more spiritually grounded we are when we are near to God. When we realize that God is near, whether you acknowledge it or not, or even remember today that he was near or not, he is near. And when you recognize that, that is God, that is the most stabilizing, the most comforting, relieving thing that I can realize is knowing God's in control no matter what. And he will always take care of me. He will always supply my needs. And he does that and more. He gives me even my wants. Sometimes. Since God is near, believers should not be fearful or anxious. However, it's not always easy to remember these truths when we are faced with serious trials. Because when we're in serious trials, when we're dealing with hard times, it's easy to just clam up, try to figure it out, fix it. I know at least for as a guy, it's like, okay, how do I fix this problem? No matter what the problem is, something that's physically broken or a relationship that's broken or uh, a parenting issue, whatever. I, okay, how can I fix this? How can I solve the issue? Instead of going and having the posture of going, okay, here's a problem. I need to go to God. I need to go to him in prayer. I need to trust in him. I need to be patient and wait and wait silently for the Lord. Because the problem is, is when we don't have that posture attitude of going to prayer and trusting in him and recalling the truths of who God is and that he's near and that he will take care of you and that he will cause all things to work for your good. Is that it causes us to lapse back into fear and sin. It was kind of just like David did too. Remember when he acted like a madman in Gath when he was fleeing Saul? <laughs> and he was fearful because they knew who he was. And like, hey, this is our enemy. This is the king of Israel over here. And he acted like a madman, started drilling, doing all these crazy things. And, and the king of Gath was like, I don't need another crazy guy in my life. Uh, get him out of here. And he bailed out. And he recognized he wasn't trusting in God. And he actually wrote a psalm about that as well about how he wasn't trusting in God and he needed to wait on him and trust in him in those circumstances and not live in a life of fear and worry. And it's easy for us to look back on even David, who was anointed by God. God worked in him and he had a very special purpose and yet he was still fearful of Saul. He still had those fears that Saul would come after him and kill him, even though God promised he would work through him and that he was going to anoint him and he would be the king of Israel. No different. Just because you have a special calling by God, you've been anointed king of Israel, doesn't mean you still have those sinful tendencies of fear, anxiety, and worry like he did. So how do we get ourselves into that? How do we get ourselves to where we can default as a Christian to prayer, to his word, to recalling scripture to mind and recalling the truths of God and who he is? It takes discipline. It takes discipline. It doesn't happen overnight. It does not happen overnight. Are you in a constant habit of reading the word daily? If you're not, like I tell the high school students, start today. Start today. And all I, I even say this, this is my little challenge. If, if, a, if a person is not reading the scripture on a daily basis, regularly, start off just reading 15 minutes every day for two weeks. I promise you the Lord's going to use that. The Lord's going to start working in your heart and your mind. And for the first week, probably you're going to just be like, oh, dragging up in the morning. I don't want to do this. This is tiring. I'm exhausted. Or maybe you wait till the end of the day and you're already exhausted at that point. 
fight through that. Discipline yourself. Nothing comes easy, even as a believer. Nothing comes easy. And just from my own experience, when we see anxiety present in our lives, it's typically because there's a lack of understanding there of God and who he is. And that's when I feel myself, when I found myself worrying or being anxious about something, it's because I've totally knocked out God out of my mind. And I'm just thinking, how do I solve this? This is a big problem. Is there ways I can solve it? So I'm going, God, you knew this was coming along. You knew this was going to happen. Before the foundation of the world, you knew this was going to happen. You've already been there, and you're already on the other side of that. And often we find ourselves getting anxious and built up about things that aren't even really a big deal to begin with. I mean, think back to the times where you've had probably your hardest, one of your hardest trials. And you thought, how am I going to get through this? Think about that moment. And yet here you are today. Yet here you are. Sitting here, gone through that trial. Maybe you're going through the trial right now. Yet here you are. You're still here. God sustained you. God took care of you. God brought you through it. So are you here this morning, one who's on weak, unstable ground spiritually? Build your foundation on the only rock that is unchanging and unwavering. That would be my encouragement to you guys this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful that you are a God that is unchanging, unwavering. You have, you're the same today as you were yesterday and as you will be forever. Eternally unchanging. And that's encouraging because you're also a God of love of mercy and grace who in his perfect Trinitarian love before the foundation of the world saw it fit to create a creature in the image of God that he could have a relationship with. And that even though we messed it up along the way, man fell and chased after his own desires and wants, yet you still condescended yourself, reached out, loved us first so that we could love you in return and have a relationship with you that you've intended since the beginning of time. And I pray that we would continue to work on that even today and, that, and even in this life now, that we would learn to grow and love you, know you better, and learn to trust you more and more each day. And this I pray in your son's name. Amen.